All right, Henry, is your descript rolling? Yeah. Are, are, wait, 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 what's that? Are we, are we live? Are we live? Are we going to do this every time? <laughs> are we, are we live? <laughs> I think we're, I think we're live. I think we might be. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Henry Ewing, and I'm joined with my other co-host. Asta Sinha. Super excited to talk about our topic today. Henry, can you give us a little rundown of what we're going to talk about? We're talking about Dr. Elsat diagnosing problems, how to diagnose problems. This is frequently a topic that I have to go over with my clients, and it's a big part of my job as a tutor and instructor at Seven Sage is not only understanding, realizing that you have a ways to go on this test and that you have problems, but figuring out we all have problems. It's okay. <laughs> but figuring out what problems you have and how to attack them. It's very overwhelming when you first start studying. We all have had that experience. I know I did, where I took my first PT, the diagnostic, if you will, and it was a sea of red. It's just a sea of red, and I didn't know where to start. I was like, wow, I've got too many problems. And it was really difficult to understand why I was getting thing ro- things wrong. Does that make sense? Because it seems, I will, it, I think we touched on this last week, where a lot of the questions on this test seem so intuitive. And you think you know the answer, you select the answer, and it ends up being wrong. And you're like, oh my God, why did I get this wrong? And so this podcast, what we're going to be looking over is how to diagnose your problems, breaking things down into timing and content. What else? And what some of those fixes might be, right? Like where you should go to diagnose your issues, what you should do once you've realized that they're problems. And I think for me, at least when I started studying for the test, sure, yeah, I took my diagnostic, didn't really know where to go. But part of it was kind of reassuring because it's like, oh, this is just my diagnostic. I haven't even started studying yet. I still need to learn all this stuff. And then I'm never going to have any problems ever again. I feel like it's a lot worse when you realize you have a lot wrong. I mean, sure, right? But at that point, it's like, okay, let me just go through all the content. Let me learn all the material. Let me go through the core curriculum or let me read a book, whatever, right? You do all of that. And then you take another PT. And then when you're still getting things wrong, I at least felt like I had hit a wall. I was like, well, good God, I've learned all the things that I thought I needed to learn. Now what? And I felt like about midway through my studying, at least 75% of my time wasn't even going towards doing practice tests or doing practice problems. It was just figuring out what was going wrong. Like, I had no idea and spending God knows how long on r slash LSAT trying to figure out like what my issue was, what my problem was. So hopefully this episode gives you guys a little bit of peace and you have at least some perspective going into trying to diagnose your problems and where you can improve from. Because I know, I don't know about you, Henry, but I spent a vast majority of my time once I got halfway through my studying, just figuring out what to do. Yeah. No, I I 100% agree. What I'm hearing you say is you take your diagnostic. It's scary because you're getting everything wrong. But because you're getting everything wrong, kind of no matter what you do, you will make some progress. And then you take another PT and you realize that you've made that progress. You keep studying and then you take another PT, but it's not as you haven't made as much improvement. And then you take another one and you start leveling out. And it feels like you are just studying and making no progress. And that's exactly what I mean, no one likes that grinding for no reason. Very few people are studying this test for for the pleasure of it. Some of you freaks are I know I was. You studied the LSAT just for the fun of studying the LSAT? I, I, it's, it can be we've talked about how the LSAT can be a little bit fun. But it's not the most fun thing. There are things you would rather be doing, but that doesn't mean it's not fun. That's fair. I I think you can come around to that. And so when you start leveling out, that's where the diagnosing problem starts to really come into play and trying to figure out, well, what do I need to do to, to break through to that next level, right? How do I go from the high 150s to the low 160s? How do I go from the low 160s to the high 160s and so on and so on until you get, until you're all the way up into the high 170s. And then you get a 180 and then you're just perfect. 
Possibly. <laughs> I mean, I, I totally agree. And when I when I think about diagnosing problems on the LSAT, I think it's really, I, I guess it simplifies the process to break it down into two main components or two main parts. So the two main categories of problems you're going to have on the LSAT are either timing or content. And that's really all it breaks down to, right? You're either too slow on things or you just don't know enough. And if you can look at it from that perspective, like I just need to fix one of these two things, I think it makes it seem a lot less daunting. So what do you typically see, Henry, when you're trying to diagnose like a client of yours or a student as far as timing issues go? What are you kind of looking for there? One thing I'm looking for in timing, and it's so funny because you say you're they're going too slow. I would add an asterisk to that. It's not always going too slow is your, your problem. On RC, for example, I frequently see people reading the passages way too fast. They read way too fast and they spend two minutes reading the passage and then they try to answer the questions. And one of the problems with that is if you're blitzing through the passage, you very likely are not spending enough time consuming the passage and actually understanding the passage. And hey, this is reading comprehension. It's testing to see how much you've comprehended the passage, not how fast you can go through it. I mean, it sounds so obvious, but it, it, but it's true. Yeah. And even though it seems scary, one of the things that this is basically every single client I have to work with them on is learning to slow down on the passage, really take your time to consume it, and then going into the questions. Now, it feels scary. Why? Because it feels like, oh, man, I'm wasting so much time on the passage. I need to look at the questions. I don't know what they're going to ask. What if they ask something super hard? The benefit, though, of when you spend that time reading, and you spend that extra time comprehending the passage, you will reap dividends on the questions. The amount of time it takes you to answer every single question goes way down, goes way down. And so one thing you can do, and, and one thing I would recommend, at least with RC, is on 7 Sage or whatever you're using, try to time how long you're spending on the passage before you go into the questions. If it's below two minutes, I guarantee it, no matter what, you need to be spending more time reading. And that will just help you across all question types. When it comes to LR, it's a little bit different. I would say it's a little bit different. You never want to spend more than a minute and a half, I'd say. I don't know. What's your rule of thumb? I usually say about a minute and a half on, on every question on your first pass. Yeah, I think it depends. I think if it's if you have standard time and you're working with the earlier part of a section, you should really be aiming for about a minute. And then once you get into the later part of the section, maybe the last couple of questions, then I'm more like around two minutes. But I don't want to get too, too specific onto the suggestions here before I kind of talk generally about what it means to diagnose timing issues, right? It comes down to a lot of different things. So I think the first and, and the biggest timing issue that I see people have across all sections is just not finishing the section in time, right? If that's your issue, that's where we come back to, okay, well, how long are you spending on the passage versus the questions? For LR, are you spending a bunch of time on the earlier questions and then you're running out of time at the end? For games, right? Are you spending all of your time setting up your game board and then you're not able to finish all the questions, right? Are you not able to build your game boards fast enough? So when you're thinking about diagnosing issues for timing, first indicator is that you have a timing issue is that you're running out of time at the end of the section. Okay, let's see where your time is going. But if you're not running out of time at the end of the section, but instead you are just rushing through it, right? You get to the last couple questions or the questions that you skipped and you're having to rush through it. That's your opportunity to go through your timing analytics and see, okay, where am I investing my time and how do I move faster through those steps? So that's kind of the, the biggest talking points I would have for diagnosing issues with timing is, are you running out of time completely? Okay, let's go back and see where that time is going. Or are you just rushing through the passage? Are you rushing through the questions? Okay, how can we redistribute our time so that we don't feel rushed anymore? So would you kind of agree with that general assessment of timing issues? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think we should add, though, what are some quick fixes 
we don't have to go too much into the nitty gritty because I think someone who's listening to this is like, thanks, Henry and Asa. You told me I have a timing issue when I'm running out of time. I know that. I don't need, I don't need help with that. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, what enough. am I good for then? What are we good for then? <laughs> One thing you can do when it comes to RC is, is doing a quick check-in at the end of every passage where you're at with time. I think that is very beneficial. Generally speaking, you want to be uh, under nine minutes for every single, I mean, you have to be if you're taking a standard time LSAT. And so getting, making a habit of just, all right, I'm on to the next passage. Let me just check my time real quick. And then that can help you gauge how fast you you may or may not need to go. Again, with RC, I'd rather you rush through the questions and spend more time with the passage than rush through the passage. The same thing with games. Checking, There's you're going to be doing four games on every single section or LG section. So just at the end of every game, just checking, like making sure like, okay, I'm at about eight and a half minutes. That means I can, I can keep going smoothly. If you find at the end of game two, you're at, I don't know, 19 and a half minutes. That means, okay, maybe I should, I need to step on the gas a little bit. And the same thing with LR. You hit minute or hit question 15. Like you said, you should have about 20, 19 minutes left. Ideally. Yeah, ideally. If you have, if you've already spent 20 minutes on the first 15, it's, you're running into issues. That means you ha- you're having problems on the first 15 and you need to learn to move faster. If you are only spending about 15 minutes on the first 15, you've got 20 minutes left for the last 10 questions and then you're running out of time. Hey, that indicates that to me that you need to start working on and drilling those four star problems, those five star problems. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it totally does. And I think that's a really good segue into the second big group of problems that you might be having is just content, right? If there are question types that you don't understand, if there is a passage structure that just doesn't click for you, if in and out games keep you up at night because you just cannot figure out how to do them, right? Those content issues, it doesn't matter how much you practice and practice and practice, if you just don't understand the material, you're going to have a lot of, you're going to have a really hard time with it, right? So I think sometimes when we get past like the core curriculum or a book that we're reading for the LSAT or whatever material it might be, and we start doing practice problems and practice tests, there's a, a sense of, maybe I'm wrong here, Henry, but I know I felt like a sense of pride. I was like, I can't go back to the core curriculum. I already watched the whole thing. Like I should know all of this by now. And then I'd be sitting there struggling through these problems, absolutely refusing to go back to the basics because I don't know my ego is too big but I, I don't think there's any anything wrong in fact it's in- encouraged to go back to the content go back to the first step go back to the basics whenever you're seeing patterns in problems that you're missing and that's something that is well worth your time even if it means I don't know you skip a PT for a week you skip a practice test and instead you go review the core curriculum or review some content I think that's super important yeah, I mean, there's no shame in re-looking at the core curriculum. There's no reason that's a damage to your pride or ego. You know what's damage to your pride or ego? Scoring under your PT on the actual LSAT. So, And we're telling you, hey, you want to avoid doing that? Yeah. That means going back into the core curriculum on 7Sage or whatever you're using, going back to that original curriculum and, and reviewing. Yeah. Always checking. It's going to be so much more beneficial to you than just trying to stumble your way through. So we've talked about kind of the two main types of problems you can have on the test, timing issues, content issues. Henry, where do I go to see what problems I actually have? Well, you're on 7Sage and you've subscribed to 7Sage Prep Plus with access to Prime Live Instructors and every single PT with video explanations. You go to the diagnostics page. I, I, I don't want this just to sound like an ad for 7Sage, but one really beneficial thing that 7Sage offers, and I think a lot of other online services do offer, is the ability to see every single question type and see the types of questions you're missing. That would be where I would start. Now, of course, you see like, okay, I'm getting most strong supported questions wrong, or I'm getting main conclusion questions wrong. What does that mean you need to do? Well, first, I would say, hey, 
that's a pretty good sign that you should go back into the core curriculum of whatever service you're using and look at how they're doing or how they recommend you do main conclusion questions. Look at how they recommend you do those most wrong and supported questions. And then after you do that, it's time to drill. Drill, drill, drill. It's, yeah, over it's time to drill. So again. instead of just going back and looking at whatever, you know, looking at whatever problem you're getting wrong, looking at the explanation for how you do those problems, right after that, it's time to create a set of 15 problems and do them in a row. You don't want to just look at someone tell you how to do things. It's time to get active. It's one thing as, as a coach, right? It's one thing a, a coach can tell you how to swing a bat, but you got to go and swim the, swing the damn bat. I mean, it kind of comes back to, I think it was our first episode ever that I did like a very long swimming metaphor. Do you remember <laughs> yes. that one? <laughs> I remember that one. No, that was great. I love it. I love it. It does come back to that. Exactly. I think it's you cannot just read your way into learning how to swim. Just you got to learn it, understand it, and then go practice the thing. So I think that's a really big one, right? Understanding what question types you might be missing. But another thing that I think a lot of people gloss over is it might not just be the question types that you're missing. Even if it shows up really high priority on your analytics or it's like on the top of your playlist, whatever it might be, it could also just be that you're missing a certain level of difficulty for questions, right? It could just be that you're missing only four or five star questions. And maybe those four or five star questions all happen to be weakened questions or necessary assumption questions or whatever it might be. But if you're just missing hard questions, that's a different problem than just missing a specific question type. I've also worked with people who tend to only miss really easy questions and they get all the hard ones right because they're just moving way too quickly through the easy ones and they're misreading things, right? For me, there was a phase in my LSAT studying where on logic games, the only questions I would miss were questions that had the word except in it. Because for some reason, my brain just would not compute the word accept and I would pick the wrong answer and move on with my life. But look past the question types, at least a little bit, and see if there are patterns in difficulty or in certain phrasings, like an accept question, and see if those are the things that you're missing. And that's a more unique way, I think, to diagnose what problems you're getting wrong. Yeah, I know, for sure. And then, of course, too, on the test, and not to complicate things, another layer, but I'm going to do it. So I'm about <laughs> to complicate things. You notice you're getting a lot of the hard harder questions wrong. Well, the harder questions tend to be towards the back of the test. And what you want to check and see, and this is why getting the first 15 questions done in 15 minutes, if you're not doing that, you're not giving yourself enough time to get those really hard questions right. So it might even be that you're not even that terrible at those harder questions of sufficient assumption, for example. You just are running out of time on them. And you're not running out of time on them because you don't know how to do them, but because you haven't given yourself enough time to do those hard problems because you spent too much time on the easy problems. Oh my God. I say this all the time, Henry. Yes, I completely agree. I, this is the the common I hate. All right, we're about to we're about to knock Reddit a little bit. It's such a common sentiment on Reddit, though, is that you want to make sure and of tutors too, by the way, not at seventh stage, but of tutors that you want to make sure you're getting the easy questions right. It's it, that is to me that's like often the biggest killer of someone who's in their 160s and they want to get into the 170s. They feel like, the, oh, I, I don't want to miss any of the easy questions. So they spend extra time to get them right. The questions don't care, right? They all count the same. They all count the same. And it's far better. If the questions don't care. It's like they, they all count the same. So it doesn't matter if you're getting an easy question right or a hard question right. What you want to be doing is spending the appropriate amount of time on each. I totally agree. Like, I'd much rather you miss one easy question and then have time to solve three hard questions at the end. Like, oh my God, is that trade-off worth it? Absolutely. 
I was just about to say, you probably mi- will miss one easy question by blitzing through. I don't want to say blitzing through, but by going quickly, <laughs> by going quickly through the first 10 or 15. But guess what? You get good enough at this test, you're going to have five. I mean, I would, when I started doing this, I had like five minutes at the end of every section. Yeah. You go back and you check. You have time to double check your answers then. Exactly. And because it's so easy, it's usually quite easy to be like, oh, wow, I, I messed that one up. And you can see it. Whereas it's a lot harder to, under time pressure, look at a really hard problem and be like, oh my God, what's the right answer here? Your, your brain starts spinning. And not to get into, not to make this a timing podcast. The, the point, I, I guess we should circle this back and just by saying, hey, you don't want to fall into these common, I guess they're fallacies, right? It's like, oh, well, this is a very LSAT way to, it's a very LSAT way to look like correlation doesn't equal causation. Just because you're getting the harder problems wrong, it's not because, it might not be because you're bad at harder problems. It might be because you're bad at easier problems or you're you're devoting too much time to the easy problems. Absolutely. And I think that goes goes for LR. I think it goes for RC. I think it goes for games as well. Like this idea that, oh, well, I've got to at least get the first two games completely correct, or I've got to at least get the first two passages completely correct. And then you go and spend 20 minutes on the first half of the section. Well, now you're giving up points that you probably would have gotten either way. Like if you had just sped up a little bit, you probably wouldn't have missed a different amount of questions on the first half of the section. And now you've just given up the entire second half of the section. I feel so strongly about this. Yeah. And and I guess we should speak on, at least on, if you're using a software, they will frequently have a recommended time for each question and for each game, for each passage. Yeah. That can be a good guide for you to to see, am I spending too much time on an easier question? If you are not using a software and you're studying on pen and paper, I think a good rule of thumb is that you should definitely not be spending as much time on game one for example, than game three, generally speaking. To me, that would indicate, okay, you're moseying a little too slowly through the easier games. It's time to focus on speeding up or focus on the easier games and just drill them so then you can get faster. Yeah, I I completely agree. So like just to kind of sum it up, right, when we're thinking about diagnosing problems that we have, okay, we've decided that we have some kind of an issue on this test. I don't really know where to go to figure it out. Well, first take a look at what question types you're getting wrong, whether it's LR question types, game types, passage types, things like that. And once you figure that out, go back to the content, review it, and then drill it out. Or take a look at what difficulty of questions that you're missing, right? And then from there, decide what's the best course of action. Is my time better spent reviewing how to do hard questions? Or is my time better spent just getting faster at the easier questions? And I think your blind review score is a really, really good indicator of that. Because if you're getting these hard questions right on blind review, it literally just means you need to move faster on the easier questions. So you can give yourself enough time to do the hard questions. If you're not already blind reviewing, go listen to our last episode and then you will because we're incredibly convincing. But your blind review score should be a really good indicator of where your efforts are going to be best spent. What, what else do you think about how to kind of analyze your blind review score, Henry? I mean, one thing I've, I tell people is, uh, I guess, I, not to bounce off your blind review score idea. If you're scoring high in blind review, it usually means you need to do the problems more. It just means you need to start drilling a lot to build up that speed. I think that's fair. If you're not scoring well on blind for you, that's a good indication you need to go back into whatever sort of educational material that you use for the LSAT and and review those questions. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good like it sounds very like binary, but I think that's really what it comes down to. I mean, I feel like that's what we're trying to do on this test is give advice to the most people. Uh, yeah. The most useful, the, the advice that'll be most useful to the most people. And as a general rule of thumb, I think that is a pretty good way to go about that. So you check your blind review. Hey, I'm getting them all right. It just means you need to elbow, elbow grease. Do they still use that term anymore? Elbow grease? 
It's like you put some elbow grease into it. I mean, I've heard the phrase, but I don't know if I've heard it recently, like in the last five years, maybe. Are you gonna look hard physical work? I guess it's not physical work. (laughs) Brain grease. You got to put some brain grease into it. Brain. Okay. Anyways, the very last place that you should look to see slippery brains. That's what we want. Just slippery brains. Yeah, I like my brain slippery, dynamic. Okay. Anyways, (laughs) the very last place that I think you should look. When you're trying to figure out what issues you might get a grip, Henry, what issues yeah. you might be having on this test are looking at your wrong answer journal. So if you're not already keeping a wrong answer journal, again, we talk about this. The wedge. If you're not already keeping a wrong answer journal on this test, one, you should listen to our last episode. Find out why I'm just totally glossing past what you just did, Henry. So for that wrong answer journal, there should be a place on that journal where you're marking, what do I need to do better in the future to not make a mistake like this again? Or why did I make a mistake like this? And if you're noticing the exact same reasoning for certain question types or the exact same reasoning across a section over and over again, that's a really great place for you to hone in and drill. I think everybody should have at least a little bit of time carved out each week or every two weeks to just look over your wrong answer journal and see if there are any patterns, see if there are any trends, right? And then finding course of action from there. What do you think about that suggestion? Hey, I think it's a great suggestion. One thing I tell my clients to do is when they look at their wrong answer journal, every time they miss a question for the same reason they note down in their wrong answer journal, I make them do 50 push-ups. Did you say push-ups? Mm-hmm. You make them like do 15 physical push-ups? Yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if I recommend that, but you should be mindful of it. <laughs> What? Do you actually do that? 15 no, I, I would never. No, I never do that. I would get everyone would hate me if I made them do fifth. Actually, maybe they'd love me though. I think, by the way, it's good to be physically active when you're studying for this test. I'm a big believer in the, the, the brain body, <laughs> the, the mind body connection. Slippery <laughs> brains and large muscles. That's what we're looking for at Seven Sage. It's really that's the, what the, we're, that's where we're going for. The interse- we're looking for the intersection of slippery brains and. and large muscles so let's move on to why are you (laughs) i don't know what i don't know what's happening with that we should cut that (laughs) the intersection of slippery brains and big muscles that's good that's a good one-liner yeah So when we're looking at, you decided we've looked at our blind review score, we've looked at our analytics, we've looked at our wrong answer journal, but you're like, okay, I don't really understand what it is that's causing me to run out of time. I don't know what's causing me to get these questions wrong. Well, there are a couple things that Henry and I have kind of noticed, and Henry, I'll let you go first with your translation spiel. What does that have to do with running out of time and getting questions wrong? Thanks, Asta. Yeah, so translating into conditional reasoning, this is something I see so often happens to people when they're studying for the LSAT, happens to my clients when they start with me, not when they finish. Happens to my clients all the time. And it's difficulty turning sentences into conditionals or logic, as we said, seven sage. If you're unable to turn a sentence, a not unless sentence into a conditional, you're going to have massive problems on this test. Because essentially what's happening is you might have a really good sense of, of logic a formal logic, if A, then B. But if you can't turn a sentence, one who runs likes to, I don't know, what's, what's everyone who runs likes to eat bacon. Bagels. Uh, yeah, bagels. Oh. Yeah, eat okay. bagels. Sure. If you can't turn that into if run, then likes to eat bagels, you're going to run into, a, you're going to run. <laughs> hey, hey, come on. 
you're going to run into a lot of issues on this test. It, but it's true. If you are devoting brain power to how do I translate this? That is brain power that you are diverting away from the already hard task of doing the LSAT. Generally speaking, the test is hard enough. Even if they gave you this test in the form of all A then B, I think a lot of people would still mess it up. Yeah, I think a lot of people would still mess it up. So translating sentences into conditional reasoning, it, it needs to be like breathing. It needs to be something that you don't even think about. You just see it and you know what that means. Not unless I can't stress how hard, important it is to be able to look at that and know what that means. For You will not get a good score on the LSAT unless... You can translate into conditional reasoning. What does that mean? You know, what does that mean? I challenge everyone to go write down, if you, uh, not if you're driving, to write that down. And <laughs> if you're yeah. having problems doing that, if you're having problems turning sentences into conditional reasoning, usually to me that indicates you need to look at indicates group indicators. Yeah. And just drill it, practice it, look at it more. But something that I've, yeah, whatever it might be, right? But something that I've realized as I've spent more time with this test is it is an immediate process for me, right? The second I look at a logic logic games rule or a logical reasoning argument, it's I don't even have to think about it. I unwillingly, I am translating these arguments and I'm translating these rules into conditional conditional logic, right? And you need to, if you're really looking to excel at this test, it has to be that easy for you. And obviously, right, it's not an easy thing to develop. It takes work. It takes practice. It takes consistency. We think I've said the word consistency maybe a million times since we started recording this podcast, but it's one of those things that can really eliminate. Consistently said it. Eh? <laughs> eh? Henry, I just feel like your jokes have derailed as the episodes gone. It's so bad. <laughs> but I exactly right. Like I, I think it's so so important that that becomes an immediate process for you. And I can almost guarantee that once those translations become immediate for you and intuitive for you, your timing issues and even your accuracy, right, is going to be resolved to a large extent. Super yeah. super important stuff. Something I'd also say is basically every sentence can be turned into a conditional. And so if you're not studying, just try practicing it. People say, oh, my phone is gross. Well, if you're my phone, then it's gross. <laughs> for for example, I know I, I'm looking at my phone right now. I'm seeing the fingerprints on my nice <laughs> deep purple iPhone 14 Pro Max. Oh my God. <laughs> but but for real though, I think the outside of studying things can be very helpful. Just practicing conditionals. I will not get my Starbucks venti coffee unless I pay five dollars. Where are you getting a venti coffee for five dollars? Okay. You know what? I now that I'm thinking, I that that just it, that's that doesn't make any sense. That's yeah, illogical. Not, <laughs> it literally is. That is an invalid argument. The Starbucks venti coffee for five dollars. That's crazy. Hey, if you live in New York and you're getting Starbucks, you're folding. I'm gonna throw it out. You're I don't folding? go. To, I, do, I, do, I don't go to folding. You know, do you, I feel like you don't know any of my phrases. You haven't heard elbow grease. You don't know what folding is. I had like, heard elbow grease. Folding to what? You're to messing Starbucks? up. You're messing up. Uh, I, it's like folding in poker. Oh, oh, I see. If you're Asta, then you don't <laughs> understand slang. <laughs> For slang? example. Is that this is slang. <laughs> okay, you were saying what was the point of this, Henry? <laughs> well, the point is we're talking about how little you understand certain phrases like elbow grease and poker. Yes, I forgot that that was the 
topic of the podcast. <laughs> no, but I, I, I agree. I, I think yeah. it's one of those Dr. things Elsa that you can practice. diagnosing Asta's problem. Hey, look, look at how great I am at diagnosing issues. You're killing it. No, you're right. No. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness. Let me call my doctor. I'm going to fire him. But yeah. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree. It's one of those things that you can practice all the time. And honestly, I feel like a lot of people who are studying for the LSAT feel this. I know that I did. Once you're like in the thick of it, the LSAT becomes your life to some extent, right? You're eating, sleeping, breathing the LSAT. So you kind of start to see these things everywhere. It's a little scary, honestly. It was not a voluntary process, but now I'm just translating conditional statements wherever I go, which you win some, you lose some. Sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes it's a little obnoxious, but it makes me better at the LSAT for sure. Which brings us to the next part, Asta. And it's a very common problem, making assumptions. Talk to me about that. So the thing with this test is it's very difficult to look at these arguments that they're presenting you or the passage that they're presenting you and not try to fill in the blanks. Right? And not try to use, not even necessarily background information, but just take things a jump too far or a step too far. right? And if you're doing that or you're making assumptions about things that are not in the argument, you're not taking what's written at face value, you're going to run into a lot of issues. Because a lot of trap answers, right? a lot of those answer choices that are going to seem attractive, they're good if you take the argument one step further. They're good if you fill in a blank in the argument that wasn't already there. So another thing that you have to get into the habit of doing if you want to move faster, if you want to be more accurate, is not adding in information or making assumptions about what the argument is telling you. Okay, Henry, I know you have a really good explanation of this using like a sweet and delicious thing. Talk to me about that. Damn, that sounds so sassy. Was it sassy? What was it? It sounded so sad. Okay, Henry, I know you have like a really good, really good way to explain this. It's that just was great, isn't it? I was like, oh my God. I don't know what's. <laughs> All right, wait, okay, right, so sweet and delicious. The way I like to talk to my clients and explain to my clients this concept of making assumptions is the difference between sweet and delicious. People will often make the assumption that because something is sweet, hey, that's delicious, unless you're one of those weird people that doesn't like, do you like sweets? I hate desserts. And so you're one of those people. I love sweets personally. And I know that there are people who are like me who also love sweets. And so they look on this test like, oh, this candy is sweet. And they immediately start filling in gaps. They immediately start thinking, mm, well, that candy must be pretty good. Those gummy worms looking a little chewy, looking a little delicious over there. <laughs> but on the LSAT, we don't know that. Yeah. Right? Sweet does not imply delicious. It can if you have another conditional that says if sweet, then delicious. But if they just tell you something is sweet, one should not assume that that means delicious. Now, that's a very obvious example. But this kind of thing comes up all of the time. Yeah, it comes up all the time. I'm sure we'll talk about this too. And a good rule of thumb that I like to give clients is if you see words that look the same, but they're written differently, I wouldn't take for granted that they mean the same thing. Maybe they do, but start trying to unpair, not unpair, but start trying to untangle your brain from assumptions and look at it with a, a new set of eyes and be like, hey. That's really motivational. Yes. It, this is what we, I, I don't know. Is that what we're trying to do here? Are we trying to be motivational? No. Yeah, of course, Henry. What are you trying? I'm trying to be motivational. I'm trying to get these people their 180s, okay? I'm trying to get them into <laughs> law school. That's what I'm trying to do. I don't care if you're motivated. You know what? I don't actually want motivated people. I want dedicated people. <laughs> I want killers. Reason I feel killers. Like no. I need like a movie montage of people like training for war or something to start playing. Yes. But push regardless. ups. <laughs> <laughs> and the 15 push ups. 
Yeah, that's but what... yeah, I totally, I totally agree with the assumptions thing there, right? Making sure you're not adding in information that's not there. That could be a really big reason you're running out of time. That could be a really big reason you're getting things wrong. The very last point that I want to make to that is assessing whether or not you're freezing up. And I see this the most on logic games. And a principle that I teach a lot of my clients is something I call the pen to paper mentality. Henry, have I ever told you about this? I can't remember. The pen to paper mentality? Yeah. Oh my God. I know. Sounds really sounds dramatic. Like, that is very dramatic. It sounds like it sounds like a problematic thing. Why? You know, it's like like a like a problematic social occur. I'm thinking like the school to prison pipeline. Oh my god. Or th- or th- or things like that. The pen to paper mentality. Something like that. Like oh my god, we Henry. need to start talking about the pen. No one's talking about the pen to paper mentality. Not enough people are talking about on it. On the headlines. No. Okay, that's not what it is at all. <laughs> Hear me out. Uh, okay. What it is is a lot of times we do logic games, right? And we might get stuck on a problem. We might get stuck on an answer choice. We don't know what game board to build. We don't know what inference to make. And people will just freeze up and just stare. Like literally just stare at the question for minutes trying to figure out what the next step is. There's not time for that on this test, right? So that's where the pen and paper mentality comes in that if your cursor is not actively moving on the screen to pick an answer choice or click to the next question, your pen should be to paper writing down something. I don't even necessarily care what it is, but I would rather you test out a random game board than just sit there and stare at these answer choices for two, three minutes on end trying to figure out what the next step is. And something I've actually had my clients do is record themselves doing a logic game, like propping their phone on their desk and record themselves doing a logic game and checking how many times their pen is not moving, right? Like actually clocking in what proportion of the entire section they're not actively writing things down. And they're like, oh, I'm running out of time and I don't know what it, why it is. Well, that's why. Because your pen isn't moving, right? You're freezing up. And as simple as that sounds, it's something that when you're on the test, you don't even realize how much time has passed by as you're doing the problems. So I really recommend for games, LR, or see whatever it is if you find yourself just completely freezing up do something do anything at all snap out of it maybe take one second look away from your screen and come back but you cannot afford to completely stop moving on this test you have to be go 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 it's a three hour long sprint and once you get past it you can relax you can chill you can freeze up all you want but when you're actually doing the section pen to paper cursors moving you're actively working every single second that clock is running so does that sound a little better than what you no, started no, off I, with? no 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 it's very motivated we got to get the pens to paper if your pen's not on your paper that's you've got problems okay what kind of pen are we talking about and oh, if it's G2. not a if, no no henry i tell everyone they need to have the friction pens they are by far the best pens. The friction pens? I don't even know if I've heard yeah, that before. The friction erasable pens, they are so elite on this test. Erasable? Yeah, they, they're the best Ooh. erasable pen. This is not, we're not sponsored by friction. I, uh, although, hey, friction. I think it's Pilot that makes them. If you're are listening you to this. you going to be like an we'll, LSAT influencer, Henry? Like, we'll, what is we'll, that? We'll gladly, we'll, gladly take, we'll gladly take those pens. Guaranteed to add two points to your LSAT score. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the Sharpie pen, too. That's a good one. I'm sorry. I've derailed us. You were saying. No, I, de- I derailed us by asking us the pen. I like that. It's kind of like when they say, if you have writer's block, you just start writing. It's annoying when people say that, but you just start putting stuff on the page and then letting the LSAT muse flow out of you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I completely, I completely agree. So that pretty much brings us to the end of the episode, but I want to just take a minute and kind of sum up what we've talked about here in Dr. LSAT diagnosing problems. When you're looking at this test, break it down to two things, right? Timing, content. Where are your main issues? If it's content, don't be afraid to go back and relearn stuff. stuff. Don't be afraid to go back and reread or rewatch content you've already gone over. And if it's timing, well, let's figure out what's actually happening. 
Are you not translating quickly enough? Is that not intuitive to you? Do you need to go back and memorize those things and practice that? Are you freezing up in places that you maybe shouldn't be freezing up in? And in order to figure all this out, right, where should you go? Go look at your analytics. Go look at your blind review score. Go look at what specific question types and difficulty that you're missing. And especially, especially make sure you're keeping a wrong answer journal and actually reviewing it and actually looking over what problems you're missing and why you're missing them. And that in my head is the road to 180. What do you think? I couldn't have said it better myself. I really couldn't. I 100% agree. Diagnosing it. It's good to spend some time diagnosing issues. I think we should really probably should have put that in the front. But if you're not spending time to think about why you're getting things wrong, you're also messing up. Of course, it's not good to just do that and have no idea. And so hopefully we gave you some things to think about when you are diagnosing the issues. But it's a very efficient way to go about studying. Totally agree. Keep those brains slippery. Oh my God, Henry, that can't be a Brain our slippery, line. pens to paper, 180, never quit. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, my mantra now. Thanks for tuning in. Happy studying and keep your brain slippery. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Seven Sage Podcast. For more LSAT study tips, visit sevensage.com. See you next week. <laughs>